This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I am Compound248, and this is our next installment in our Business Breakdown mini-series focused on digital infrastructure, where we are breaking down a handful of companies that are key players in the digital infrastructure asset class. We are pleased to bring you this podcast in partnership with Roundhill Investments, the advisor to the Roundhill IO Digital Infrastructure ETF, Byte, which trades on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol BYTE. The fund tracks the Byte Index, which measures the performance of 40 leading global digital infrastructure businesses, such as towers and mobile communications, fiber and fixed line connectivity, and data centers. For a prospectus and more information, please visit roundhillinvestments.com slash ETF slash Byte. Read carefully. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing distributor Foreside Fund Services, LLC. Our hope with this mini-series is to give you an understanding of how the businesses that underpin our modern lives with an almost magical, ubiquitous, connected existence work. How is it, for example, that Netflix, based in Seattle, is able to deliver a perfect streaming video to your phone in the backseat of a New York City taxicab, or, as the case may be, to your seat 20,000 feet in the sky? Digital infrastructure powers that experience. And in this episode, we will talk about a company that delivers that airborne experience, GoGo. Known for its eponymous in-flight Wi-Fi service, GoGo is frequently misunderstood, having undergone a transformation to focus purely on the business or private aviation industry. It sells equipment that gets installed on a private aviation airplane, and then, in infrastructure-like fashion, monetizes that equipment with high margin service revenue for decades. We're fortunate to be joined by Oak Thorne, who has led GoGo for 20 years into the success it is today. We're really pleased to have with us today, Oak Thorne. I think the GoGo people think of when they think of your service is not the GoGo that you are today. So when I get on Delta Airlines and use GoGo, that's a business you no longer own. So today, we'll actually have an opportunity to learn about a new business, so to speak, for most people. And so with that, Oak, I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about GoGo's history and yours and how those two intersect. The irony of what you just said is that we actually started in business aviation and moved into commercial aviation around 2008 and then exited about 2020 you know, are back to being a healthy business aviation and flight connectivity company. We invested in GoGo in 1996, actually. And the original business plan was to use, at that time, analog cellular technology, point antennas at the sky and sort of have a, a cell network in the sky to serve business aircraft. We actually got that business to being profitable. But the problem was that the analog backhaul that we relied on for that network really started disappearing in 99 or 2000 or so. We didn't have the money at the time to invest in <laughs> in building a digital network. We'd just finished building an analog network. So we dipsy-doodled very quickly to satellite, actually, to narrowband satellite. And we moved our customers to Iridium. Iridium was just coming out of bankruptcy and got a good deal with them to sell their service. And we manufactured equipment to access the Iridium network and provide Wi-Fi from that in the aircraft. It was actually narrow band, so it was more phone calls rather than Wi-Fi, I should say. We got that business profitable, and in about 2003 or so, we started eyeing going back into ATG and raising the money to build that digital network, and also in going after commercial airlines. So we did. We started building our digital ATG network in about 2003 or so. And when you say ATG, you're saying air to ground. 
So this is a network where you're putting an antenna on the belly of the airplane as opposed to the back of the airplane, and it's catching signal from cell phone towers on the ground, correct? It's catching signal from antennas we put on cell phone towers that aim up in the air, not parallel to the ground. So that rolled out late 2008, actually rolled out on Delta Airlines originally, certainly thereafter American Airlines. You know, the problem with that was that if you got any kind of high take rate, we didn't have the capacity to support that with our frequency. We bought Spectrum, unlike the first product, the analog product, in 2006, managed to get the FCC to auction four megahertz of Spectrum for air-to-ground use. That's something you could never do today because the Spectrum would be so expensive, they'd never repurpose it for air-to-ground. I think it'll be the only air-to-ground licensed Spectrum that is ever sold off in the U.S., So that was a great investment on our part. We managed to get that Spectrum for $31 million, which is a real song when you think about what Spectrum costs today. And we built our ATG network based on that. And so we have clean Spectrum, which is really nice. And it forms a really strong foundation to anything we roll out in that it's very reliable across the whole country. There's nobody to interfere in that range. We got that done, rolled out on Delta, but the usage was so high on these commercial airplanes that four megahertz of spectrum just wasn't enough to support them. So we really had to take the commercial airline division into the satellite world. And we partnered with geo satellite providers to stitch together a network globally of beams that we bought and we actually bought, paid for full time and managed in terms of a global network. And ultimately, that didn't end up to be a very profitable business, especially the business outside the U.S. So we finally exited that in 2020. What is your story? How did you personally come into GoGo? And what's your background before taking over the leadership reins here? Well, this is my third rodeo as a CEO of a public company. My first one was a company called Commerce Clearinghouse, which my family had owned for a long time. It was an old print publisher of loose leaf legal reporters on taxes and securities law and the like. They had a couple other businesses too. They all kind of ran into the same problem in the late 80s, which was that they really hadn't digitized. So the company got in a fair amount of trouble, started shrinking, and somehow I got picked to lead it at that time. (laughs) Congratulations. Yeah. You know, we managed to get it into a digital world. We converted all the print into electronic formats, delivered it on CD-ROM and then online and now on the internet. We converted a tax service bureau business into a tax software business, a whole bunch of big changes. And we ended up selling that in the mid-90s to Walters Clor for about three times what it was worth when I took over a couple of years before. And then we formed a family office and put about 80% of our assets in a diversified portfolio, but we wanted to take 20% and invest in companies ourselves in order to drive a higher than market return on the portfolio. And one of those was a company called eCollege, which was a very early startup in the e-learning space in the late 90s. I managed to get public at the end of the dot-com bubble <laughs> in December of 99. It raised $55 million. I think by the end of January, it was down to $36 million and shrinking fast. So somebody had to come in. <laughs> and so I could start Monday again. So I started. That ended up being a great journey. And we sold that for about 5X about six years later. We focused on kind of a SaaS model, supporting really big, large online institutions, really niche focus. And that worked out well. We sold that to Pearson. So this is my third one, probably my last. If I am framing it back to you, today, when we say business aviation, we're really talking about private travel and the higher end of private travel, not typically your four-seat, single-engine, prop plane, you know, the recreational flyer, but this is for professional planes that can go cross-country within the U.S. And to date, your business in business aviation and BA has been purely U.S. Is that a fair scoping? Just to give it the big picture context, there's about 220,000 aircraft in what the FAA labels general aviation. That is non-scheduled flying. It's not vertical. It's not military. It's not government. Of those 220,000, 24,000 are considered business aircraft. And that is that they're primarily used for business purposes or they're charter or fractional or whatever. In the U.S.? In the U.S., right. And our network, the ATG network I was describing a moment ago, is solely in the United States and Southern Canada. 
pretty much as far up as people generally fly in Canada. And we have the unified spectrum in the 850 megahertz range between the US and Canada for ATG use. So that's why that works out well. And so, yes, we're North American bound. Of the 220,000, like I said, about 24,000 are business aircraft. And think of those as everything from very large Gulf streams that fly globally all the way down to turboprops that probably seat six to eight people, you know, your big King Airs and planes like that. Of those 24,000 today, how many do you estimate are currently outfitted with some sort of in-flight Wi-Fi service? About 30%. To me, that seems surprisingly low. I'm guessing it's because the average plane is more than 10 years old and in-flight Wi-Fi has only become a must-have service sometime in the last 10 years. I think that's a good assumption. You know, the average age of of an aircraft in the fleet is more like 20 years. So nobody was ordering Wi-Fi on an aircraft 20 years ago. So that's part of it. The second is that it's still more complicated than it should be to install on an airplane in the aftermarket. So typically, people don't install the systems until it goes in for a large maintenance event for other things. And then they can install us while they're in the shop already. And that occurs about every five to six years. So you don't get many shots at these aircraft, and you really don't want to miss one. That kind of implies, call it eight or 9,000 planes in the U.S. have one of these services on it. And when I say one of these services, help scope what the competitive landscape looks like today. And then we can talk about maybe how many planes you guys have. Today, we really have one type of competitor, and that's geo-satellite providers. And geo-satellites are 22,000 miles above the Earth. That means that they need a lot of power and pretty big antennas on the plane to reach that. So their equipment is quite heavy and it's quite bulky. So it really only fits on large jets. They're expensive to install. The equipment's very expensive and they are very expensive in terms of the service plans. So that's our competition. And in that heavy jet market, it's about just a shy of 4,000 jets in the US. We've got about 1,800 of those, maybe a little more, and our competitors combined have about 100 less than we do. We also coexist in a lot of those planes. A lot of them have ATG and geosatellite, and when they get outside the U.S., they flip on the geosatellite service, and when they're over the U.S., they use us. And the reason for that is that the geosatellite service is more expensive, so if you're chewing up megabytes when you get into the overage cost, it's going to cost you a lot more than we do. And we have much lower latency because we're not going 22,000 miles up and back. We're just going a couple hundred miles to the tower. So typically the system seems more responsive than geosatellite products. So that's the competitive layout. And I mean, you estimate about 8,000 planes, you know, we're getting close to 7,000. I think we had in the last call 6,600, something like that and growing. So that's the rough breakdown. So 6,600 planes out of 8,000 and some portion of that 1,400 are going to be global planes where they really need some sort of geo service in order to be able to catch internet around the world. But it sounds like in the rest of it, you basically have dominant market share. Now, it kind of begs the question of non-US as well as the other 200,000 smaller planes that historically have not been addressable. Is any of that coming into your space? How is your business changing? I think you had some news this weekend even that might be worth touching on right here. Well, we always wanted to liven up this podcast with something fresh. So you're going to be like (laughs) the first interview on this particular issue. Yeah, we announced a global product at the eBase convention in Geneva, which is the big international business aviation air show. We've partnered with OneWeb and Hughes to deliver a fuselage-mounted, very small antenna to access the OneWeb LEO satellite constellation, which is about two-thirds launched now, and they're continuing to launch. This is something that'll take us a few years to roll out, but it'll give us an opportunity to go after the 14,000 aircraft that are considered business aviation outside the United States. So it's a nice expansion to our TAM. If you think of a US TAM is about 24,000, and then we'll add 14,000 to that for a total of 38,000. So exciting news. We think it's a great product. And I'm sure later on, we'll talk about how it fits with our existing product line, but it's going to be pretty easy to install if you already have us in the US. And it's going to be pretty easy to install it, even if you don't have GoGo on your plane already. 
maybe this is an opportunity to talk about what your different product offerings are today. So you have your advanced platform, you have global broadband, which we just touched on, and there's one in the middle that's also being launched, which is a new 5G. Maybe you could help scope what those are and why different customers might choose different services. Our classic product, it's just over half of our install base is on, still on our old product lines. And we had a number of varieties of these over the years, but we call them classics. They run on our 3G and 4G networks. You know, they get typically one megabit per second kind of speed, so quite slow relative to what people experience in their homes today. They do have the benefit of very low latency, however, because they're still very close to the towers. They can perform pretty well in terms of interactivity. The big shift four years ago was we launched this thing called Advance. And Advance also runs on our 3G and 4G networks. Today, it comes in two flavors, our L3 for smaller aircraft and our L5 for larger aircraft. I'll just point out, though, they're made of the same parts, common componentry across them, which also plays into our strategy long term. That platform is extremely flexible. And one of the flexibility vectors of that is multi-bearer capability. So it can take in more than one network. So today it might be using our 4G network. Tomorrow it might use our 5G and our 4G network or our 5G network and our GBB LEO satellite network and aggregate that capacity to deliver greater capacity to the user. So if you're getting 50 megabits per second on your LEO antenna and you're getting 25 megabits per second on your ATG antenna, now you can get 75 combined in North America anyhow. That multi-bearer capability is a great feature of it. And again, it has very low latency. But the even benefit then is when you think about 5G, and now we're rolling out our 5G network, which will get more like 25 megabits per second. And that launches in the last part of this year? Yeah, in the second half of this year. Peaks of up to 75 or 80 megabits per second. That 5G network will run on unlicensed spectrum, but it will be aggregated with our 4G network so that you always have the benefit of the four megahertz of licensed spectrum. So you're never going to lose coverage, very good speeds most of the time. So that's the new product coming out relatively soon. And then, of course, we talked about global broadband. While that expands our TAM, it'll also give us a lot more capacity, a lot more capacity in North America for the large jets here that fly globally, for instance. You know, they no longer will need to use a geo product. They can use our Advance L5 like they have today. They can add a, an ESA antenna on top of the plane, which is very easy. You mount it on top and you run two wires into the plane, one for data, one for power. And all of a sudden, you've got ATG plus LEO. You've got a really powerful system over North America, and you've got good global coverage as well. So that'll be, a, I think, give us a nice lift in units in the U.S. on that side. It also, we look at it as a belt and suspenders and kind of defensive in protecting our core market of medium-sized jets on down to light jets. Those guys, if 25 megabits per second isn't enough, they can very easily add GBB and the ESA antenna and augment that capacity. And it'll be greater than they can get from anybody else. So that's really exciting too. Maybe this is a chance to touch on the economic business model. My understanding is if I want to buy one of your services, buy my airplane, so to speak, and then I need to install on it these antennas, which I'm going to pay for. And we can touch on that in a second. But that's a one-time spend for me. You guys have some sort of gross margin associated with that. And then basically forever, I'm paying a monthly fee based on consumption. It's effectively a giant broadband internet service. So this is a podcast about digital infrastructure. And when I think of digital infrastructure, I think of build it once, monetize it for decades. Is that economic profile, does that apply to GoGo? Where would you say yes? Where would you say no? Well, I think it definitely applies in, in a couple of different ways. First of all, we don't have long-term contracts with our customers, but we have long-term relationships with aircraft. So when our equipment's put on an aircraft, it's on there. Right now, I think the average is close to 20 years. And that's almost since the beginning of the company. It's like almost nobody's ever taken it off. <laughs> and that's because the switching costs are high and you really need to want to make a change. Now, look, we're lowering switching costs in the future with advance in terms of adding capability, but not switching. Just to put a bullet on that, you're making it easy for people to upgrade within your system so that the switching costs to go from L3 or from L5 to 5G is not very high. But if a competitor showed up, I presume the switching costs would be actually quite substantial. 
they would be. First of all, they'd have to rip us out to make room for the competitor, which isn't the hard part. The hard part is you're installing a whole new system with its own box units that have to go in and have special places to go and new wiring, new Wi-Fi access points in the plane, new antennas on the outside. So, you know, talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of doing that. And in terms of these upgrades, we're, you know, looking at something much less than half that cost. You're really not going to want to leave us in order to do that. It just isn't going to be economic. So that hundreds of thousands of dollars, just before we leave sort of how the equipment itself works, if it costs me $200,000 to install one of your better systems onto my plane, perhaps half of that is antenna cost and then half of that is labor and install that goes not to GoGo, but to a third party? Yeah, probably less than half of that is GoGo because we sell at a discount to MSRP to the dealers to install. And obviously, we can't charge OEMs more than we do dealers. So, and we'll talk about distribution channels later, I'm sure, but we get less than the list price, if you will. Yeah, there's labor involved and parts and things. And so, and that's where the dealers make a good living. So, I would say typically, you said a couple hundred thousand, it's probably, you know, like 300,000 the first time you put somebody in if it's an ATG system. For satellite, it's 400 to 700,000. For satellite, for geosynchronous satellites, not LEO necessarily. There is no LEO option today, but yes. But I'm imagining what it might cost in the future. So back to the other question you had, which was digital infrastructure attributes of us. Obviously, we have this equipment, towers and backhaul and base stations in our core data center and all that stuff that looks like digital infrastructure. But I think the other big feature is, you know, we have these long equipment on an aircraft lifetimes. That aircraft may switch owners three times in 20 years. It probably does. On average, they switch every seven years, but the equipment stays. So when one guy sells it, he turns it off. But the next guy, when they get it, they turn it back on. So that, I think, is a lot like digital infrastructure. The advantage we have, of course, is we have negative acquisition costs. Most digital infrastructure companies have an investment to make when they get a customer. It's a tower company. They have to build the tower for that first customer. Thereafter, every new customer or tenant is very, very profitable because you've already paid for the <laughs> already paid for the tower. We kind of resemble that as well in that think of the country, 250 some odd towers as a tower. We're already making a lot of money on that, but every time we add an aircraft, we don't have to add any investment. We've already made that investment. Your existing network could handle how much more traffic? We count it in terms of number of planes because it's actually the core that you need to expand uh, so much the radio access network. So we can handle about three times as many as we have today, and that's projecting out, including 25% a year growth in consumption. We have maintenance capex of about 15 to $20 million a year projected going out. And we've spent a little bit less than that, frankly, historically, but that's what we think it'll be. And some of that will be uh, actually helping us expand that 3x to be about 5x. So that 15 to 20 million of maintenance capex, that's undergirding how much service revenue in 2021? So we have a sense for how capital intensive that revenue piece is. Our service revenue for 21 was about 260 million. But I will warn a small portion of that is from our old narrowband Iridium and Swift broadband products. But the bulk of it is from ATG. So you mentioned you have almost 6,600 ATG systems currently installed as of Q1, but you also are expecting 1,300 new orders this year. So if I do that rough math, it's about 20% growth on your current installed base. Uh, Some of that obviously will be replacing legacy systems. Some of it won't be immediately installed. Um, so how how should we think about the growth in unit volume going forward? Well, we did net 600 plus last year ATG systems, and I think we'll do a little bit better than last year this year. But you have to remember, you got to back out a couple of things. Some are upgrades and some people turn off equipment before it goes on the market. And so we don't see it for a while and it comes back later. Another factor is that There's about a four to five month lag right now from the time we ship until the system is installed and activated. So we'll ship 1300 this year, but they're not all going to be installed. You know, there's some puts and takes. And so right now I'd say, you know, it's sort of 600 ish a year. Then maybe next year might be higher because obviously we've got to have a big tailwind going into next year of equipment that we ship this year. So a very meaningful upfront investment 
by your customer. And then I view that clearly as the razor. Customer comes in, they're buying the razor, and then you're selling them a monthly razor blade for hopefully two decades. What does that cost structure margin look like on the razor blade, on that recurring service revenue? That's about 75%-ish margin for us. And a lot of those costs are backhaul expenses, staff associated with customer service, tower rent, things like that. Some of that's fixed, so it does scale up with volume. By implication, very high free cash flow margins on a recurring revenue basis. And then you're spending money right now building out your 5G network. Maybe you could just talk for a moment about where you are with that. And then once we do that, I'd really like to discuss how the technology works and get a little bit wonky about that. But let's round out the 5G network first. So we've said we're going to spend about $100 million in external spend on 5G. We've spent roughly a third of that. About a third of that is OPEX. Two-thirds of that's CAPEX. And by the end of this year, we'll have spent about 90% of that. There'll be a little bit of some invoicing in whatever that carries over into next year, but the system will be done in the second half. We're on budget and we're on time. So we're pleased with that. I presume the 5G network will officially light up and launch sometime in the second half. And then the way these ramp, it requires somebody buying that system and installing it. So you have a long runway with your existing L3 and L5. And then this will be a piece of incremental growth that attaches on to that going forward. Help me just scope what the momentum of the business growth looks like as we go out year over year. Well, today, I like to compare it to the L5 launch because they're sort of the appeal to the same markets, if you will. So L5 launched five years ago. It's about 25% of our install base today. And we project a similar, but maybe not quite as fast a ramp up on the 5G product. That's the kind of growth we expect. We think it's going to grow for a very long time. We think ATG will be relevant to a large part of the market, especially the light jets, turboprops, and mid-sized jets for a very long time. It's easy to install. It's cheap, low latency. We think it's going to be around for quite a while. Let's just take a moment and touch on how the ATG network actually works. You have this constellation of antennas across the U.S. that are mounted on towers. I'm picturing them pointed up at the sky and generating like a cone-shaped network. At some point, a plane is passing through that cone. Maybe help me understand what actually happens on the bottom of the airplane. So there's two antennas on the bottom of the airplane. Ascend and a receive. Yeah, exactly. In the traditional products. And the country is being divided into a set of cones and those cones intersect. They intersect at about 3,000 feet, which is why that's our service altitude. They pass through cone to cone to cone and they kind of get passed off from tower to tower as they go. The difference with 5G is it actually doesn't have cones at all. It's all based on beam forming. So the antennas in 5G, are they're pointing a beam at that plane and they're actually tracking the plane through the sky. Instead of me generically flying through a general field that's generated by your 4G system, the 5G actually finds my airplane in the sky and points signal directly at it. That's right. And that's 5G standard. And that's called beamforming technology. And I presume it requires a whole different antenna setup underneath my airplane, or how do you integrate those? What does that look like on the bottom of the plane? They're new antennas. But if you have Advance L5 on the 4G network, the new antennas are basically the same exact size as the old ones. And they screw in. There's a little adapter plate you have to use, but basically screws into the same exact holes on the aircraft as the old one. So it's a, not a very difficult switch out to go from the 4G network antennas to the 5G network. And then to your point, your in-plane Advance system, you don't have to do anything to that other than a software upgrade, correct? For some period of time, you've got to add a small bearer box to that, but we will eliminate that relatively soon. And so you'll be able to just do a box swap inside the airplane of the same exact size box as what the Advanced L5 was. So it's very easy to swap them out and add those two antennas and you'll be all set to go. If I am now imagining as a customer, what portion of your business comes through this aftermarket upgrade or install? versus at the OEM line fit 
when it's manufactured? And how should we think about that going forward? Well, historically, it's been about half and half. But when there's flex in the market, it's the aftermarket that can flex. The OEMs can't flex as much. Meaning they can only make so many planes and that doesn't flex up dramatically. Yeah, they can flex up, but it takes longer. Okay, so they're all flexing up now because they've got bill-to-book ratios that are or book to bill, I should say, of around two, but generally those have been around one. You know, now they're flexing up. They're being cautious because they're a little worried that if there's an economic downturn, all of a sudden all these orders could, or the pace of new orders could slow a lot. So they are being kind of cautious, but everybody's been ramping up their projections for the OEMs pretty steadily all this year. The expectation is that they're going to be delivering quite a few more airplanes the next couple of years, but it takes them a while to get there. Whereas in the aftermarket, you know, they can flex very easily. They can rent more hangar space. They can very quickly handle more planes. For us, of course, the main thing is, even for the planes they have, is attaching IFC to that order, which is what we're seeing now. So right now, we're over 60%. IFC means? In-flight connectivity. So right now, I would say north of 60% of our new installs are in the aftermarket, and under 40% are in the OEM channel. If I'm thinking about this correctly, if I wanted to build a competing service, I can't, practically speaking, build a licensed spectrum service. There is no licensed spectrum for sale. Correct. So I have to build an unlicensed spectrum service, which would be a 5G competitor, so to speak. I believe there is somebody in market who's attempting to do that. Maybe we can begin to talk a little bit about competition, and I think that'll give us some windows into other parts of your business as well. You have this 5G competitor who, in theory, is coming to market right now, Smart Sky. What's sort of the status there? Like, What would somebody have to do to knock you off a plane as a competitor? So first of all, they're not a 5G competitor. They're a 4G network. They started in 2014 building this, and they still haven't really delivered the networks. Their biggest problem is they don't really have a product yet. Eight years later. That's issue number one. Number two, they only rely on unlicensed spectrum. And this is where that licensed spectrum is a great competitive advantage for us. The problem with unlicensed spectrum is that that 2.4 range of spectrum is what we all use for Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and garage door openers and all kinds of stuff. The purpose of that spectrum is to have a lot of sort of narrow range or small range RF products for people that you would never want to have the FCC have to license every one of those products. So that's the purpose of that spectrum. And so when you get under over densely populated areas and you get a lot of this usage rather interfering with each other, it actually builds up and it gets up into the sky pretty far (laughs) and it will basically overwhelm your signal from your aircraft to the tower. There's a lot of parts of the United States, especially on the coast, where there's a tremendous amount of interference. So that's going to be a real challenge for them, and that's a real advantage for us. They have a lot of other challenges as well. They've not really thought through how they design their equipment very well, so it's quite hard to install. They have very large antennas. They've got a 30-inch antenna and a 15-inch antenna on the aircraft for their flagship product, and that is just way too big for most of the market, way too big and way too heavy. They didn't really get the joke in this business, which is you've got an antenna on the ground and you've got an antenna in the air. You know, you have choices to make about where to put how much size in terms of power. We made the decision we're going to have really big antennas on the ground. And if you look at our 5G antennas, they look like sails on a sailboat. They're so big, but really small antennas in the air. So we have two 13-inch antennas as opposed to a 30-inch and a 15-inch and substantial weight advantage and all that. And for most of the market, that's a game changer. I presume that also means a power advantage for how much power you use on the plane. We're using less power on the plane and more on the ground to reach the plane. There's an inverse relationship between the size of the antenna and how much power you're going to be able to get. So if you have enough power in one, you can reduce the power in the other and vice versa. So they're attempting right now to launch a 4G competitor that would be competing with your, call it your L5. And at the same time, you'll be launching a 5G add-on. What is the speed differential that one of your 5G customers might expect versus your own L5 service and the theoretical Smart Sky service? We do self-reporting of our customers. We at BCG go figure out what our customers think they get. They think they get two to eight megabits per second with our L3 and L5 products. 
our average for the 5G, what we've done is test city routes. So we took like the top 12 city routes in the US. It'd be like New York to Miami or something like that. That's, I think, number one. And our customers, we think, get about 25 megabits per second on average, peaks of 75 to 80 with 5G. Now, Smart Sky, right before the NBAA conference, they were in a magazine article, AIN Magazine, which is an industry standard, claiming they were going to get 8 megabits per second on average. And that's what people who flew their planes in Las Vegas sort of tried it on a test bed, thought they were getting about that. But then when we said, okay, well, we're getting 25, now they're going to get 15. You know, I can't really tell you what they're going to get. The first thing they got to do is have a network to run it on, and they don't. And I think they made some pretty bad design choices in the equipment, and I don't think it's all working yet. As a would-be customer, is there a price gap between your product and their product? Well, they've published pricing, and it's just a little bit less than ours. So effectively, not a huge price gap. Their network's not truly up and running yet and I guess somewhat unproven. How should a customer think about the impact of having a dealer network and the ability to have maintenance and service and that sort of thing? Does it come into play? And then I'd love to touch a little bit more on the Geosync competitors and Leo competitor. We have an incredibly strong dealer network. We've got 120 dealers and we've got STCs, which are probably more important, but the dealers develop the engineering design. And an STC is a certificate that the FAA provides the dealer that allows them to install your equipment on your plane, customer's plane. And STC covers a particular model of plane and a particular system and how it should be installed. And that installation plan, if you will, is approved by the FAA. They take about a year to get. And in our business, the dealers do them and then they sell them to other dealers. So you might have one dealer who does STCs on 30 aircraft with your system, and then other dealers will actually pay that dealer to use their STC so that they don't have to go through the design work. That's important, and it's a barrier to entry. You've got to get STC'd on all these planes. Dealers only do it if they think you're going to sell a lot of equipment, and they're going to get paid a lot by other dealers for installing that equipment. You also compete with geosatellite providers. Earlier in the conversation, you alluded to the fact that those are more expensive alternatives, although they give you global coverage. But help me understand as a potential customer what I might pay to get a geosatellite service and how that quality compares to your ATG network. There are two geosatellite competitors today, Inmarsat and Viasat, and they're going to merge, or at least in the process of merging. And I think that that merger will probably occur. They're a bit different. Inmarsat is a classic old geomobility satellite company. They cut their teeth in maritime and supplying satellite to ships. And then they got into aviation decades ago. They're very experienced. They have the only pseudo global system today. They have three satellites. Well, they've been adding a bit to it, but they got three main satellites. They don't cover the poles. They only reach so far north because you can't see around the earth from the equator where those geos are. They quite cover everything, but they have a lot of coverage. Their coverage is kind of thin, but because they have really a monopoly on that, their equipment is quite expensive. It's quite heavy. It's got a lot of components to it. It's not that easy to install. And their service is very expensive. Then you have Viasat, who has a number of different satellite products, but their real main product now is their own KA satellite network. And today they have coverage over North America, a lot of South America and the North Atlantic with Viasat 2. So they're sort of regional. They don't really have a global KA product right now. They bought another satellite over Europe, so they get some KA coverage there, but that's not terribly strong compared to what they have in the US. And they'll be launching Viasat 3, just been, I think, delayed again, but sometime the end of this year or into next year. And that'll give them sort of a third of the earth coverage. So they don't really have a global product, but they've got pretty high bandwidth in the products they do have. We get BCG to also go and ask those customers what they think they're getting. And they think they're getting typically two to 17 megabits per second with MRSAT kind of down at the bottom of that and the old Viasat KU product at the bottom of that. And then Viasat's newer KA band products towards the high end of that range. So your 5G product will be extremely competitive with those speeds domestically. That kind of brings us back a little bit to where we were started. So if I was going to describe a geosatellite to somebody, 
There's a reason we shoot at 22,000 miles out into the sky. We're basically trying to sync up its speed with the spin of the earth. And it stays in a synchronized location above the earth. And it shoots down a huge cone that covers every part of the earth it can see from that point. That's very different than what our friend Elon Musk is trying to do at Starlink, where he's launching something called LEO satellites, low earth orbit. And those are not synchronized to the world. They actually spin around the world. So the satellite itself is orbiting the earth. It's asynchronous to us here on the ground. But the theory is they have more smaller satellites. Each covers a smaller cone, but it's closer. And therefore each satellite can be a little bit faster, have more capacity. Am I kind of framing it out? And how does that come into your space and the global broadband product? You've got it right. They're lower, so they need less power to reach the earth. And it's easier to close the link budget between a terminal on the ground and the satellite. So you don't need all the power that you need for the geo satellites because you're not going 22,000 miles. You're going, in Elon's case, 350 miles. And in OneWeb's case, 750 or 800 miles. You also get much better latency because it's a much shorter trip. You have much less path loss in the packets as they go out. If they go out into space like that, you lose a lot of them. And that means you're going back and forth to actually fulfill the signal and to keep the budget going and to get everything to your computer that you need to see in order to see whatever it is you're receiving. So there's much less path loss. So it's just much more efficient from a link perspective. Generally, you know, you have to add a lot of different types of orbits. Actually, you have some that look like orange slices that go over the poles. But then you've got some at planes and various angles that cross the equator at different angles, if you will. But that can give you complete global coverage. And so that's the other big advantage. You get polar coverage. I presume LEOs are effectively have been enabled by the SpaceX type of technology where the cost of launch has fallen dramatically. Is that fair? That's a big part of it. There's just a whole lot of technological developments around antennas and other things that enabled it. There was a whole different way of thinking that, you know, every geo satellite is its own work of art. Right. It's a billion dollar project. Takes forever and they're made one at a time on a big hangar type space. The whole idea of actually having mass production of satellites was really pioneered by OneWeb and Airbus manufacture the OneWeb constellation. They have a factory that turns out I think it's two a day or something like that. And of course, Elon's competing with that and he's maybe turning out more than that. It's kind of a race to the finish line on that. There are some big differences between different approaches to LEO that are probably worth noting. You know, Elon's approach is going to be, I'm going to be really close to Earth because then I'm going to have the lowest latency and I'll have the easiest time closing link budget and having you know more capacity. So he's like 350 miles up. Now, a couple drawbacks to that. Number one, they fall out of the sky a lot more often because they're actually not high enough to really sustain an orbit without using a fair amount of energy. He's got very high maintenance costs. He's going to have to replace a lot more satellites. You also need a lot more satellites because the closer you are to Earth, the less view each satellite has of the Earth. So you need more satellites to actually cover the Earth. So I think his final phase one is something like 11,000 satellites. So that's expensive to manufacture. You know, he's got his own rockets, which makes it cheaper for him to launch. There's a lot of ways that they're getting efficiencies there, but they've got very high maintenance costs. And then the last issue that he has is he can't always see land from the satellite. So he has to put in inter-satellite links so that over the Pacific Ocean, for instance, where I can't see land and I can't reach a ground station to get my signal to the internet, he has to pass that signal from one satellite to another. Those are called inter-satellite links. He didn't initially have those on his satellites. And the reason was they're sort of a learning organization. We're going to throw stuff up and see how it goes and keep learning and developing. So they took that approach. They've been launching satellites with inter-satellite links now for a while. I think probably 600 or so of their 200 and some odd satellites have those links. But they're expensive. Inter-satellite links, this really complex laser technology that literally points lasers between satellites up in space, blasts the data back and forth. He's got a very expensive network with a very unique design. 
OneWeb and Telesat, who are the two other players right now, OneWeb being the only one that's really launching at this point, but Telesat's on the drawing board. They're higher up, and so they can see more of the Earth. OneWeb can reach the Earth from any satellite, so it has more ground stations than Elon's got, but does not have the expensive intersatellite links. So they have, I think, the advantage of probably being lower cost. They're going to complete in the not-too-distant future. They got set back by the Ukrainian war because they were launching from Kazakhstan. But I think they've relocated all their launches now to the United States, and they'll start launching again pretty soon. They're just different approaches. We're talking about Leo and Starlink as if it's fait accompli that it will be a competitor, but we actually don't know that as of yet, whether Starlink plans to launch a true business aviation service, but maybe you could talk about the service they have launched and some of the reasons we might expect them to become competitor. Well, they've always said they were going to come into aviation, but aviation's a lot bigger than business aviation. The aviation market includes all the military, government aircraft globally, which is a large count, relatively price insensitive market, commercial aircraft, which is about 20,000 aircraft globally, and also because of the density of users on commercial aircraft, pretty good customer in terms of the amount of data they're going to use. So I think that's an interesting customer for them. And then they're dabbling in business aviation, especially at the high end. Where it's effectively a commercial plane that's been repurposed for business aviation use. Or almost the same size. Like Elon's got a prototype antenna on his Gulfstream 650. They don't fly in commercial at all, but they're a regional jet size almost. You know, we went through this big strategic planning process after we sold the commercial aviation division in late 2020. And as we looked at the risks out there to the business, Starlink probably are the highest risk that we saw. And so much of our strategy is formulated around digging our moat deeper and having more barriers to entry than normal in order to make sure that they either decide not to enter our space or that we're very competitive with them when they do. We projected then that they would come in via regional jets, and that's what they're doing. And the reason for that is without the intersatellite links, they really can't serve airlines that go over the ocean. Today, that kind of puts the commercial airlines on the mainline planes outside of their TAM. Regional jets, however, only fly over North America. So they've come in there. The first deal they announced was JSX a funny little airline that flies from FBOs, like private aviation terminals, uh, but flies a scheduled flight and you buy a seat on an aircraft. And they're Ember Air 135s and 145s, which are small regional jets. They seat like 35 passengers. And that was their launch customer. I know they've also been talking to a lot of the commercial airlines. And I actually expected them to announce with one of the major airlines as a launch customer on their regional jets, but we haven't heard anything to that effect. So now if we bring it back to GoGo, it sounds like 5G and your global broadband product both are opportunities for growth over time, but also they sort of like close the door behind you as a defensive mechanism to keep off competition. Is that a fair way of framing it? GBB is offensive and defensive, no question. The defensive piece is that we can add that the ESA antenna that we're designing and building with Hughes. ESA means electronically steerable antenna so that it can capture those beams, so to speak. Exactly. Well, it points beams at satellites. And the advantage of that is the way it does it is from a flat panel with the antenna elements in that panel. And they move the beam by running electrical currents through those elements in different patterns. And it has no moving parts, so it should be very durable. And it can switch the beams very quickly. It's all just chips. You know, with these satellites, especially Starlink, which is going to have thousands of satellites, you have to switch beams every couple seconds. You can do that with those. OneWeb doesn't have as many satellites, so we'll be switching every couple minutes. Mechanical antennas have a hard time keeping up with that. And that's all of our competitors' antennas are mechanical. The idea is that they actually wear out pretty quickly if they have to turn all the time. <laughs> so on the defensive side, we can add these ESA antennas to installed advanced aircraft and augment the capacity that aircraft is receiving and aggregate it with ATG. So like I said earlier, let's say you've got 5G on the plane and it's getting 25 megabits per second. 
And then our Leo product can add another 50 megabits per second. You know, all of a sudden you've actually got 75 megabits per second. Now I'm making those numbers up, but the argument goes that ATG plus Leo is going to be greater than Leo alone. And I think based on what we're seeing, what Starlink's able to deliver, et cetera, and sort of projecting that out, we think from a capacity perspective, that will really protect our North American market well. First of all, you have a cheaper, easier upgrade to a Leo. And second, that Leo is actually aggregating capacity with ATG to have more capacity than competitors. The offense is that we can go after the other 14,000 aircraft in the rest of the world, and we can go into the large jets that fly globally today and have our system on board with a geo product, and we can go after that geo product and replace with our Leo product. I'd love to start putting these pieces together. The way it sounds like is there's 24,000 addressable US planes, of which 8,000 have a system, and you're on, I'm just using round numbers, call it 7,000 of those 8,000. That call it a third of the market having a system on it today. It's very hard for me to imagine in 10 years that just about every plane doesn't have it. So when a new plane is built today for US business aviation delivery, what portion of those end up having an in-flight Wi-Fi solution? Let me break down the, how the deliveries work first, because I think that's helpful. About 70% of those aircraft are destined for the US, 70, 75%. Of new build business aviation planes. That varies over time. But over the last couple of years, it swayed a little more to the U.S. because people couldn't even fly most places overseas due to COVID. So that's the first break. Of those that are going overseas, the heavies will all have a geosatellite system. Of those going overseas that aren't heavies, none of them will have a, any kind of broadband satellite product because they don't have a system they can fly, no network they can fly. And then of those that are delivered in the U.S., about 60% have us on it of the 70 no, 70, 75, roughly about 60% have us on them. That's just 60 out of the 70, not 60%. Yeah, yeah. And then I would guess roughly maybe another 20% or heavies would have geosatellites on them, geosatellite capability. So just to make that graphic, Gulfstream probably puts geosatellite product in almost every jet it delivers. Because they're large. Because they're big, large jets that go overseas. When a Gulfstream gets us, it's usually done after it's come off the line. And a lot of people will add us after it's come off the line, usually after it started flying. And so we don't count that as a line fit install. You know, we get a pretty good chunk of golf streams where they add us, but it's not line fit there. So just to give you a little bit of color, they're all different. All the different OEMs are different. <laughs> it's complicated. You know, at Textron, that's our sweet spot. Those kinds of jets, we come out on almost every plane that's staying in the US. I guess I'm imagining you have this service where... You know, you're spending $20 million a year to maintain your network. And yet every year, the overall penetration of this market is basically going to grow and grow and grow. It sounds like you have enough network capacity effectively to be able to scale to the whole US business aviation opportunity set over the next 10 years. And so I'm picturing this sort of 70% contribution, maybe even higher, 70% contribution margin on all that incremental service revenue. What eats that up? Why do you not become just a cash flow generative machine starting in two or three years? We do. I think that's the answer. $125 million in free cash flow next year. That does not include our GBB investment, however. That was based on our baseline plan before we announced GBB. We thought with that baseline, we'd get to about $200 million in free cash flow in 2025. You know, we've delevered, so our interest payments are down. That's helping our free cash flow a lot. And there's sort of a virtuous circle, which is the more we can invest in improving the service and products, and the more we improve the service and products, the happier the customers are, and the more sign up, put in equipment, then buy service plans, generating more cash. You have this dominant market share domestically. Sounds like huge incremental market share and virtually every new plane that's coming out is going to have some type of service on this. And so you just get attached and dragged along with that. And now you have this premium opportunity in the US to add Leo on top. You have 14,000 planes outside the US that are now becoming addressable. How long would you imagine this growth runway can last for? At what point do you think we're in a mature market where 
were kind of fully penetrated? I'd say 10 to 15 years. And I base that on a couple of things. I believe NBAA, which is the National Business Aviation Association, projects that 100% of business aircraft will have in-flight connectivity in 10 years' time. I believe it's Gamma, which is the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. I believe their target is 15 years. You know, I can't predict the future with specificity, but those are a lot of people that know what's going on. And so I think that's kind of the time frame. So that's a 15-year growth runway for unit growth. And then after that, who knows? It's beyond our ability to contemplate. But it sounds like we have effectively a very low churn, high margin product that looks something more and more like an annuity at that point. Love to talk about threats for a moment. How would you frame the risk of regulatory of this license spectrum? Is there any risk that you lose the license to the spectrum? Is there risk to your antenna designs? We paid for the spectrum. And as long as we use it, we can renew it. You know, absent huge changes in our legal structure, I think that that's relatively protected. And what about the actual designs and getting approved onto planes? That process, I don't know exactly how that works. There are industry standards you have to comply with, and then there are also regulatory hurdles you have to go through. There are a couple steps on each of those to get a product approved and launched. I mean, we manage that today. We have really knowledgeable people that know what they're doing, and you design your products in such a way that you know they're going to get approved. (laughs) You don't want to take that risk of investing a lot of money and then having something that's not going to get approved. So there's a risk there, but I think that's something that we live with every day and we manage every day and we build it into our design and how we design products. Your would-be competitor, Smart Sky, they haven't been able to beat you in the sky, so to speak. So it sounds like they're trying to beat you in the courtroom. They've sued you over, it sounds like, the antenna design and some of the ways that you're planning to use unlicensed spectrum. To the extent you can comment on that, I'd love to have your perspective on it. We spend a great deal of time with patent counsel and our own engineers going through all of their patents. We've always said we did not violate any valid patent of theirs. And that sort of implies that we think some of them are invalid. These four patents that they've sued us over, though, we don't have to rely on validity. We know we do not infringe on those patents. So we are feeling that we should prevail. You never know what happens in court, but you know we should prevail. The way the case will go is this. They petitioned for a temporary injunction to bar us from launching our 5G product. That will get heard relatively soon, that part of the case. Like in June or July, we think there will be a hearing. We're still waiting to have a judge assigned actually in Delaware to set a date. But to win on that injunction is quite a challenge for a plaintiff. And they have to, A, show that they are likely to prevail in the ultimate case. And it has like 70, 80% chance that they will prevail. I think that's probably pretty challenging here. And then the other is that there will be irreparable harm done to them that can't be quantified unless we are halted. I think there are arguments against that too. And that tell us how many planes you lost, and then we can multiply what your service revenue would have been. It's probably a pretty good way to estimate that you have a real challenge, I think, there. And then if they either win or lose on that, then the case will actually go forward on whether we infringe on the patents and whether there should be any damages awarded to them as a result of that. And that will probably take several years and be a very long case, very complex. Even if we were to lose that, if you look at how these cases generally go, you know, they award some kind of royalty to them or whatever for the value of whatever component of theirs the service is represented in our product or whatever, and that they usually end up being, you know, a couple of percentages of points of revenue or whatever. We don't think that would happen, but we think it's important that people understand, you know, where this could all go in the end, even if everything went wrong. Totally. It becomes a probabilistic game. I guess also on the things that can go wrong, I heard you earlier talking about the book to bill ratio of the OEMs and that they worry there could be, there is some customer economic sensitivity. I mean, I'm picturing the second home market, which is famously cyclical. You know, you cut back on buying your vacation home. How do you see that in the private aviation market? What is the cyclicality? What has it been like in the past when we've had downturns? How many customers have turned off their service? Help me kind of understand that. There's really two we can look at. One is COVID and the other is the 0809 recession 
COVID, about 20% of our customers suspended service briefly. And we had about a 4% decline in service revenue. You know, the revenue is pretty sticky, even in a very, very difficult situation where there was no place to fly to. In part, that was a special recession where people just could not travel. And so they didn't want to pay for connectivity while their plane was sitting on the ground. Oh, 09, 10, 11 actually was a good era for us. Now, that's not 100% a great comparison either because we were a relatively new product in ATG at that time. But, you know, we grew very well through those years. Our service revenue grew very quickly in that time frame. When we look forward, we say, okay, yeah, there may be fewer planes sold and there may be new planes, OEM deliveries. And generally what happens is people try to sell planes secondhand that they already have. You know, that could all happen, but there's 70% of the market that doesn't have anything. And the demographic of the flyer is shifting a younger. 67% of our customers now are Gen X, Y, and Z, as opposed to baby boomers. Those are all people that expect internet on their plane. So if they're buying a secondhand aircraft that doesn't have internet, they're going to put it in. So that actually could be kind of good for us. The main barometer in terms of drivers is the number of high net worth individuals. So you have to kind of look at how many people have lost how much money <laughs> in terms of net worth. Generally, the wheels up and flex jets of the world say, if you have more than $30 million in net worth, you can fly private. There's a huge number of people worth more than $30 million who fly who don't have any Wi-Fi yet. So there's just so much addressable market that while we may see a slowdown in deliveries and a few other things, and the orders may slow down a little bit. I think the overall trend is going to do pretty well, even through a pretty big recession. I guess the overall trend, and this to me is a digital infrastructure trend, is people want to consume more data faster in more places. And the sky is now one of those places. Absolutely. As you mentioned, FlexJet, could you just quickly touch on what is your customer concentration? I imagine it's pretty fragmented. A lot of single or small fleet owners, but there's some big players out there too. I like to describe our channels and customers in the following way. There's 10 OEMs, there's hundreds of dealers, and there's thousands of customers. <laughs> our top 10 customers, which includes FlexJet, obviously, and NetJets and Wheels Up, they account for about 20% of revenue, but then it falls off a cliff right at about 20%. And the other 80% is literally 4,000 customers. And there's none in there that are even 1%. It's a very fragmented market and customer base, which is, I think, is always good in a business. Too much concentration is very risky, I think. So barring a competitive shift, and it sounds like you guys are investing to get out in front of those, it seems like you're on this sort of 10-year glide, 15-year glide path towards more and more penetration, more and more data consumption, meaning more and more megabits that you get to sell, hopefully at very high incremental margins. You own a really big chunk of the business. GTCR, a well-regarded private equity firm, owns a similarly large chunk of the business. Between you, them, and any other person, you guys have 40 plus percent. What do you think the long-term goal is and how do we think about minority shareholders here? I can't speak for GTCR, but I can speak for us. We're very happy owning this company. I've sold two companies in the past and if somebody comes along with the right price, you know, we'd certainly be open to an exit if the value represented what we thought the prospects of the business were. So that's always an option. I see long-term strong growth, high margins. The business mix will change a little bit as we add the satellite component. But remember, we're not paying for fixed beams in that business. So variable pricing, it's a managed service model, and our margins won't be quite as high as they are on ATG, but they're going to be pretty good. But you also won't have to build your own network. So it's a variable cost business. Is that a fair way of thinking about it? Yeah, there's no CapEx other than what we invest in developing and building the equipment we sell for the aircraft themselves. So that's a resale business model that is a variable cost structure in the sense you're paying by the drink, so to speak, by the megabit, and then you're marking it up somewhat. Right. It sounds like a recurring revenue, long-term growth, low capital intensity business model. To me, that is what I think of when I think of digital infrastructure, obviously powered by those trends that we were talking about. So this has been, from my perspective, a really fabulous conversation. I'd love just to get to ask one more question before we say goodbye. You mentioned you've sold and run and built sounds like three different businesses now. You haven't sold this one yet, but you've run three different businesses. 
Could you kind of help us generalize? What are two key lessons that you think you could extrapolate and bring to other businesses? Think of this as advice that you would give to someone who's attempting to build and lead a company. I think about this often just in terms of what's the biggest lesson learned for me. And that is, it's all about the team and it's all about the culture of that team. We have a really transparent and cross-functional culture. In other words, transparency is rewarded. Expressing your point of view is rewarded, even if others disagree with it. And making sure that you're well-coordinated across the various functions of the company, that everybody that's going to be involved in something. When we look at a product launch plan, it even includes how we're going to bill for it. You got to include everything along that, that sort of value chain of delivery from inception to delivery to the customer. And in a complex business like ours, that requires complete transparency because it's really complicated. <laughs> it's really complicated. And if people aren't talking to each other very openly and expressing all the little issues and everything else, your project plans are going to run, run afoul. So to me, that's important. And interestingly, when you come into turnarounds, there's always a lot of different personalities. And sometimes the smartest guy in the room is the worst team member. And so sometimes you got to let the smartest guy go in order to move the team forward. And so that's lesson one. I guess lesson two would be, I came into this, I didn't know anything about satellites. I didn't know anything about telecommunications. I didn't know anything about airplanes. The only reason I got hired is I could start on Monday. But I ask a lot of questions. And so I'll say, you know what? Don't ever be scared to ask questions, <laughs> no matter how dumb you think the question is. I always start with the team where I say, this is going to be a really stupid question. And of course, they say, not really. And then I ask it and they say, yeah, it is a pretty stupid question. But anyhow, here's the answer. <laughs> and I think that that facilitates a lot of good questions and understanding on my part to help you know, me lead the team. Those would be the two. Well, hopefully I asked a few stupid questions in here and other people get the benefit of that. We really are grateful for you spending your time with us today. I hope that people leave this understanding a lot more about GoGo and a little bit more about how you fit into this ecosystem. Thank you again, Oak. Appreciate it. Thank you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com.